cover. Today we're going to talk about the elders. Next week we'll talk about the deacons. Then we will talk about the preachers or the ministers. And then we will talk about the members. That's the organization of the church. But don't misunderstand what I mean. That doesn't mean that the elders are up here, the deacons are here, the preachers are here, and the members are here. I don't like to think about it that way, even though, as we'll talk about this a little bit later on, the elders do have the rule over us, and the deacons do are the servant leaders of the church. That in no way means that they are better than the average member. That in no way means that God thinks of them as this special, significant people in the church. Even though they are, we are still all saviors or saved by the blood of Christ. But when we think about this organization of the church and being all of these different functions, all of these different things that we are called to be as the household of God, we need to continue to come back to this family. Because everything that we do is supposed to be done not for ourselves, but for each other. And when I think about this concept of household of God and the family concept, I'm reminded of what happens with Peter and Cornelius and his household. Cornelius was a great man of God, but he wasn't a Christian. And so basically what God did is He sent an angel, an individual, to this person's house and told him, Hey, go and send and get Peter. Peter's going to come back and he's going to tell you some specific things about not only who you are now, but who you need to be in the future and who you will be come in the future. And so he goes and gets Peter. Peter comes to his house. And when Peter gets there, who welcomes him? Is it just Cornelius? Because after all, that's who uh, God told to go get Peter. He will come and he will tell you certain things. But Cornelius had gathered all kinds of friends and family members in his house because he wanted them to hear the message too. It wasn't just something that Cornelius wanted to keep for himself. He wanted other people, friends and family, to be a part of this. And I, I think that's the mentality that we have to have. That everything that we are, the people that we are trying to be, we're not trying to just make ourselves better as individuals. We are trying to make God's people as a whole better. And the only way that we can do that is to see ourselves as a collective unit, as a family. But it all points back to this organization of the church and who God calls us to be. Organization of the church over the years even going back to the first century, has taken on many different forms. And I hope that you can see this. But I want us to kind of look at what some of these... Let me turn this on, sorry. <clears throat> I hope that you can see some of these things. At least, it's, it's tiny print. But I didn't put this together. I got this from a friend of mine years ago, and I think it's good. But you've basically got a hierarchical segment when it comes to the organization of the church. You've got an archbishop at the top. This is what you will find in like the Roman Catholic Church and other places. You've got an archbishop there at the top. And then you've got other bishops. Bishops are over rectors or sometimes rectors are described as priests. And then those priests are over these different congregations. And so you've got these different congregations, but their heads are different. The leadership takes on many different forms but they all point back to one individual person known as the archbishop. 
And some people will claim that even though they follow this, they will describe, yeah, we don't find this kind of church government in the New Testament. They will say that. But it's supposed to be a natural evolvement that took place over time. And that's the way they describe what this is. Not going back to the New Testament, but just something that needs to occur naturally or that did occur naturally. And you may wonder, well, where do they get that? Well, there's a thing in when we study uh, the, uh, the history of the church, there is a term called apostolic succession that pops up a lot. And basically what that means is you cannot be in a leadership position unless you can trace your lineage back to an apostle. Say the Apostle John, for example. Somebody that was put in a leadership position by the Apostle John. Okay, that guy put somebody else in a leadership position. That guy put somebody else in a leadership position. But it all traces back to one of the twelve apostles. And that's the only way that it can be legitimate. That that person's leadership or his title, we might say, can be legitimate. And so supposedly it's a natural development over time that took place over time. There's also this idea of a representative form of church government. The General Assembly, for example. You've got the General Assembly, and in the General Assembly you have different presbyters that branch off from that General Assembly. And then those presbyters are under those presbyters are a group of elders. We may know this as a diocese, for example. But all of those different elders are overseeing these different congregations. But again, they all point back to this general assembly and the presbytery that's over this group of congregations and group of leaders over that, those congregations. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, the Bible says that Paul traveled throughout these different places that he visited on his first missionary journey. And he established elders in every church. There's a plurality of elders over each individual church. And so it's kind of difficult to look at that and see how that fits into this model. But you move into this. And there are other ways that the independent model has been described. But I would describe it as this. And this is what we strive for here at Green Forest. You've got a group of elders, and that star right there beside that E, sometimes the preacher serves as an elder. And then you have a group of deacons. Sometimes the preacher serves as a deacon. This is becoming to be more and more prominent in congregations of the Lord's Church today, deacons uh, being the preacher of the congregation. Uh, don't know if I'll ever serve in that role, but I'm not saying that I could not. It happens a lot. But then you've got the congregation as a whole that will be made up of the preacher and the members under that. And so this would be what we find in the New Testament. But it's amazing to me how quickly we move away from something. Remember that natural evolvement that needed to occur when we talked about with the hierarchical position or, or form of church government? It's amazing how quickly things have evolved, if that is true. Because in 96 AD, there is a guy named Clement of Rome. 
This is around the same time as John supposedly wrote the, the book of Revelation, if you date it to where most people do. A guy named Clement of Rome wrote a, a, a letter to the church at Corinth, and he described the church government with elders and deacons. But by 117 A.D., we've got a guy named Ignatius of Alexandria who has, describes the one bishop over everyone. How quickly things moved to that, away from this. And so church government has taken on many forms. And what I don't want to do in this series of lessons is I don't want this to just be me berating other groups and just... But what I want us to do is I want us to just kind of look at some specific things about each one of these. The elders, the deacons, the members, the preacher, the, function of, of that, the functions that we have and the people that we are trying to be that make up the family of God. How can we make sure that the things that we are doing not only glorify God, but are, but are the best for our assembly here at Green Forest and for the church of God as a whole. And so when we think about church government and the way that Paul talks about, about it, particularly in First and Second Timothy and Titus, that's going to be kind of our focus and the framework for the next few weeks. And so when we think about elders with what Paul describes in First and Second Timothy and Titus, I think it all begins with this concept of overseer or guardian. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you look at verses 1 and 2, and Paul says that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and he goes into these different qualities that people need to have in order to serve in this overseer position. But as I was studying for this, and, and there, these are things that I've studied many different times. And what's amazing about Scripture is you continue to study something, you continue to learn new things. And I noticed something I'd never noticed before. The two ways that overseer is used in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, there are two different words that are used. They sound very similar, but they are different. Sometimes we'll have words that sound similar, but they're basically the same word. For example, the Greek word for house has both a masculine form and a feminine form, but the meaning doesn't change. It's the same word. Here we have a masculine word and a feminine word, but the meaning changes, which is very interesting to me. You've got this office of overseer. That's the feminine term. But then you've got the one who is striving to be an overseer. That's the masculine term. When we put these two terms together, here's basically what I'm trying to say. You put these two terms together and the overseer, an elder in the church, one who oversees the congregation, he oversees in a sense where he makes sure that everything is taken care of in the way that God would have it to be taken care of. He serves in that office that superintendent position, we may say. Your translation may say bishop. But when you couple it with the other word that Paul uses, the office of overseer, it means that he doesn't do so from a distance. 
He does so while getting his hands dirty among the people. And that's significant. Because overseers are not ones that just sit and survey the congregation, but they have no interaction with the congregation. Overseers are not ones to know everything that's going on in the congregation, but they have nothing to do with the problems and the the, the problem solving of the congregation. Overseers understand everything that the congregation needs, but the office of overseer requires them to get in the middle of it and take advantage of the opportunity to do something about it. What does that look like? And remember what we talked about a second ago, that uh, elders on the ch- uh, of the church, are, uh, we have elders, a plurality of elders in each congregation, but what does that look like when we try to administer God's authority throughout the entire world? What does the work of an overseer look like? Well, look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Here we have kind of an example or a description of the work of an overseer. Do not neglect the gift of prophecy you have. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now this is obviously elders that are that know Timothy very well. Timothy is going to be in a position where he's going to be evangelizing to the community around him. But is it just the community around him? It doesn't just stay in Timothy's community. It expands, it broadens to everyone in the world. And so while yes, the overseers of the congregation are, are, are involved in the affairs of Green Forest, for example, does that mean that their work only stays at Green Forest? The things that they do would hope to make the world a better place. Because the church is supposed to make the world a better place. Our elders are not responsible for what Highland Drive does, for example. Highland Drive's elders are not responsible for what we do. But I would hope that the things that both elderships are about are not just something going on in their respective congregations. I hope that both are concerned with making the whole world a better place and expanding the borders of the kingdom as a whole. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When Timothy was in the position when, the, when he was set apart by these elders, laid hands on, on him to send him out for the work of ministry. He was very much assigned to something that that specific eldership wanted him to do. But it was also that eldership being involved in everything, the work of the entire world. And that's what we do as well here at Green Forest. And so overseeing And being a guardian is something that elders do, yes. But at the end of the day, it's a work of the church as a whole and not just congregations as a whole. As we move on, we've also got this idea of manage. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, Titus chapter 1 and verse 7 We've also got overseer used here. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. 
And so stewardship is another function or another work of the elder or manage. Whenever I read this, I think about a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. This idea of steward or manage is, uh, is very much uh, about uh, basically what it means literally as house lawyer. And so you've got a person that is uh, the, the term for the, the, the word translated steward. You've got the term for house and the ter- term for law. You put them together. So basically you've got house lawyer. Well, that reminds me a lot of what uh, Jesus did in Luke chapter 16 as he told the parable of the dishonest manager. You may be familiar with this parable where you had this guy who was over the affairs of his master's house, probably his tax guy or something like that. That might be the way that we think about it today. But he was not handling those funds accordingly. He was basically squandering those funds. And his master found out about it, went to him and said, "Uh, I, I want you to come and give me all of your records. I've got to go over those things. I want to see exactly what you've been doing. And it seems like the master told the guy, look, you're fired. You've got to get out of here. But before you leave, I want you to come and give me those things. Seems like a two weeks notice or on probation, something like that. Well, this guy was like, well, what am I going to do? I've been sitting at a desk crunching numbers my entire life. I can't go out and beg because that would stoop me way down too low. I can't go out and work for a living because I'm puny. I've been typing on a keyboard for so long. I can't do any of those things. What am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find some people that my master owes money to, and I'm going to, give, I'm going to let them, I'm going to collect their debt, but I'm only going to take a part, a fraction, of what they owe my master. And that way, when I'm really fired and when I have to leave his house, then I'll have somebody, I'll have other clients, and I'll have work. Jesus commended this guy for his shrewdness, not for his sin, but for his shrewdness. But that's basically what this idea of stewardship brings about. You've got a person that is managing, or it's a a house lawyer, so to speak. The affairs of the congregation. The elders oversee the spiritual lives of the congregation, but they also are good stewards of what God has blessed us with. And good stewards of not just money, but the spiritual riches that we have, which is really what Jesus is pointing people to in Luke chapter 16, understanding the worth of their spiritual riches and not just physical riches. And so a steward is a manager, or excuse me, an overseer, but one that takes it up a notch. Because remember what we said about being an overseer and elders getting their hands dirty with the people? comes into play here as well. When I was in high school, we seem to always make these distinctions between those people that are working hard, getting dirty, and those people that, that sit around in a suit and tie and kind of manage everything. Well, when I was in high school, we had a guy come. I, was, I took a lot of ag classes in high school because I was into that sort of thing, and it was a little bit easier than the other academic route. But we had a guy come to school one day, and he was, uh, maybe you've heard of Nashville Auto Diesel College in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, he was trying to promote people, trying to get people to enroll for school there. 
And he gave this description of what kind of person we wanted to be. What kind of person do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be the guy that is sitting there elbows deep in grease working on a transmission? Or do you want to be the guy sitting behind a desk, punching on a keyboard, wearing a suit and tie, and making twice as much as this other man? Which guy do you want to be? That's basically the picture that he painted for us. And me, as a young high school kid, very immature, I was like, hey, I want to be in the suit and tie. I could wear a suit and tie today, but you see what I got on. I figured out later on in life that that's not the way things always work. Because the people that are in leadership positions, the people that are in authoritative positions, they don't always separate themselves from everybody else. And when it comes to being elders in the church, when it comes to stewards and managers of the affairs of God as far as elders are concerned, they must never do that. Because if they do, they not only set themselves apart from everybody in the assembly, they set themselves apart from the work of God and what God described the leadership of the church to be to begin with. And so this idea of managing takes overseeing up a notch. Not just leading from a distance but leading from within. That's the work of an elder. As we move on to the third thing, elders also rule well. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's look at some passages together. We've got this. This is going to come to play next week as we think about uh, deacons and, and things as well. But in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll get back to chapter 3 here in just a minute. But chapter 5, first of all, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 4 of chapter 3. Again, describing an overseer or an elder. He must manage or rule his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then in verse 12, with the role of deacons that we'll expand on a little bit more next week, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing or ruling their children and their households well. So it's not just ruling but ruling well. What does that look like? Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. And we'll look at verse 12 for a few minutes, and then we'll look at verse 13, because I believe verse 13 is an inspired commentary on what verse 12 is all about. In verse 12 he says, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. There are three expressions that Paul uses in this verse that I want to call attention to. We won't look at them in order, but notice first he says, They are over you. What does this idea of over mean? It means to stand in front of, to stand above, or to stand over. It means that elders have the authority over the congregation. 
The elders have the authority to decide where the congregation needs to go. What In what best way can Green Forest glorify God and His kingdom? Our elders describe that. And I'll talk about what that means for the congregation here in just a little bit. But notice that this is not just something that the elders are supposed to do in jest. They do it because God has given them the opportunity and the ability and the right to be in that position. But notice also that it says in the very next breath, yes, they are over you in the Lord, and they do what? They admonish you. What does this idea of admonish mean? It means to guide and direct to keep people from making mistakes. That's what this term refers to. Some people push back against this idea that elders have no authority. They don't really rule. They don't have authority in the church. They can't tell people where they need to be and what they ought to do. And one of the reasons they do that is because they don't like that idea. They don't like that model for church leadership. But it works out perfectly when you look at the very next expression. They admonish you. How are elders supposed to rule and supposed to have authority over people? They're supposed to do it with love. And do it the way that Jesus did it. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25, Peter wrote that you, like sheep, have went astray. But what did Jesus do? Jesus allowed us to return, brought us back to Him because He's what? He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's the model. It's Jesus. Does Jesus have authority over us? Every bit of it. But He does it well. But notice, I saved this one for last. In verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who do what? They labor among you. They work among you. The word used here, translated labor, basically means to expend energy, whether it be spiritually, emotionally, physically, expend whatever energy needs to be expended for the sake of the congregation. That's what it means to rule well. To not do it for themselves, to not do it in jest, to not do it because they like being in a position of authority. And believe it or not, I've seen some elders that look at their leadership in that way. I'm in charge. You listen to me regardless because I'm in charge. That is not the way that we ought to look at this. So what do we need to do as a congregation? How do we approach this concept? Verse 13 Paul says to the Thessalonians, to the congregation as a whole, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You may have a different translation, different word other than esteem, but basically what it means is to have a high opinion of someone without knowledge. I don't know everything that the elders do. Sometimes they meet without me. And I'm sure there are some things that, that the elders do that you don't know. But even though I don't know everything about them and everything that they do, guess what I do? I respect them. 
for the type of men that they are and the work that they're trying to accomplish. But that type of respect is only gained if they do it and do it well. So what about leadership as a whole? What can we learn about leadership from all these things? Two lessons I want to leave you with this morning. First of all, everybody needs leaders who operate in authoritative positions. Could you imagine sending your child to a school and telling the teacher that they have no business telling them what they can and cannot do? I'll tell you what, when Lane starts going to school, if that day comes, I'm going to tell that teacher, if he needs a spanking, spank him. He needs direction in his life. And for those few hours that he is with that teacher, she is the leader of his life. Now there may be things that happen along the way that I don't necessarily agree with and we'll deal with those things when the time comes. But every single person needs leaders who are in authoritative position. God knew that. And when you read the history of the people of Israel, it's all over the place. Which leads me to the second thing. Spiritual leadership is about experience. It's about trust. It's about respecting the direction that God has for His people. It's all about God's leadership. Think about Moses. Moses was 40 years old when he decided to go home and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he killed him and hit him in the sand. He was 40 years old when that happened. Somebody called him out on it. He fled to Midian and he was a shepherd for 40 years. When he was 80 years old, God came to him to the form of a burning bush and sent him back to Egypt and said, you're going to lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. How long did he lead those people out of Egyptian bondage or through the wilderness? Forty years. Do you see a pattern? What was God doing by Moses being a shepherd in the land of Midian for 40 years? God was grooming Moses to be the leader, not that Moses thought he could be, not that Moses wanted to be, but that God needed him to be for the sake not only of the people of Israel, but for Abraham's promise as a whole and the expansion of the church throughout the entire world. Moses didn't want to go. He didn't want to lead the people. He didn't think that he was adequate to perform the task. But why was he successful? Because God was the leader and not him. If we fail, and this is what I want to leave you with this morning, if we fail to see spiritual leadership as a God-designed opportunity for us to glorify Him and to be led by Him, if we fail to see that, then we are going to fail as a congregation. Because God is the leader. It's up to me to choose to submit to Him and to follow His lead. I love and respect our elders. But I'll be the first one to stand up here, and I hope you would be too, to say their job is not easy. But God knew we needed them. And so they stand in those positions so that we can have direction and guidance in our lives to be the people that God wants us to be. If you haven't commended them lately, please do. And it may be that you're here this morning and there's something that you need in your life, some kind of guidance, some kind of leadership. 
Every Sunday morning as the invitation song is being sung, one of our shepherds stands right up here waiting on one of you to respond to the invitation, ask for prayers, ask to be added to God's church by being baptized for the remission of your sins. If that's where you are this morning, the opportunity stands for you to make that decision. Maybe you need comfort, guidance, encouragement in any way. We offer that to you this morning. If you'll come as we stand and sing.